Coming to you live from nowhere, Michigan, performed in front of a studio audience of a couple misbehaving cats. This is Emo Town. So it's only taken a couple of games, but I, I, I'm absolutely sure that I don't really like Corey Joseph. And I also, I'm, I'm keenly aware that it's not his fault. It's that he has way too high of a usage when he's on the court. And he's usually out there with four, three, definitely at least two other guys who have a shot at being on the team for a long time going forward and being actually a an integral part of the team. They have something to develop. We don't necessarily know exactly what we have there yet. Like when Corey Joseph is out there at the same time as even even Frank Jackson, I would rather see Frank Jackson taking those shots. I would rather see Frank Jackson handling the ball more. I would rather see I would just rather see Corey Joseph come out there and play. I know he wants to, he's a human being and he wants to have fun and he wants to do his thing and he's fighting to have a career going forward and to eventually make somebody else's roster and and, and we'll be fighting with that with whatever minutes he gets probably for the rest of his career. He'll be fighting with every time I'm out there, whether it's good for, you know, in this case, the development of the team or not, I have to play as hard as I can and do as much as I can so that there's a chance somebody wants me for something next year. And and maybe next year it's somebody with something to play for and, and fewer young guys or, or whatever. But right now, I would rather see Corey Joseph just be a calming veteran presence who comes out and just is a stable mover of the ball and and that's it and not trying to do you know reverse layups over the back of his head and like again I want to win but I want to see guys who have a chance at at being somebody doing some of these things like yesterday well it's yesterday now but yesterday he didn't he didn't play with Hammy or anything cuz Hammy didn't play but when Corey Joseph's out there with Hamadou Diallo and he isn't out there to pass Hamadou the ball, it it just feels like waste. With this team, especially, it feels like waste. Sometimes I felt that way about Dennis Smith Jr.'s minutes as well. And and again, I understand that Corey has to play right now because Killian is out still. And Dennis Smith Jr. is out potentially, from what I hear, like indefinitely uh, with this uh, lower back issue that he's having. And I sympathize. I, I've, I've messed mine up in a car accident years and years and years ago. And it was never exactly the same. So, you know, I know these guys get a lot more medical attention and their bodies were in, in better shape, you know, it's not the same thing, but I understand that your lower back being messed up, it shows up in every little thing that you don't even think about. You go to move your arm to scratch your nose and it can hurt, you know? So I, I sympathize with the dude and I understand why he might be out indefinitely. There's, It's not that much longer left in the season. And if you've got a lower back 
you've got a lower back. It's it's just the way it is, you know. So I feel bad for the dude. In a perfect world where he was still on the team, I sometimes felt a little bit like his minutes were maybe his some of his stuff could go could go to somebody else, but way less than than I do with Corey Joseph because with Dennis Smith, he's young first of all, and and needs the chance to. To, to kind of like blossom and, and become whatever player he's going to be. But he's also fighting to stick in the league. And if he blossoms and shows that he is more the player that he was in Dallas than he was, than he is the player that he was in, uh, in New York, then like, you know, the Pistons might be, there might be some interest in keeping him around. But they might be able to trade him. They might be able to get something for him. Uh, I do believe... I'm always willing to be wrong when I do these shows because I just feel like it's so inauthentic to to sit here and talk and and not have the the guts to say something that might be incorrect. But I'm fairly certain that Dennis Smith... The Pistons basically have the right of first refusal on him next for the free free agency. Uh, They'll offer him a qualifying offer of whatever it is. I think, and uh, and he still technically would be under team control. He could accept that offer, or the Pistons would have the opportunity to match any contract that he that he got otherwise. Whether they would or not, depending on the contract, yada yada yada. Sometimes you can work out a sign and trade in those situations. So him playing well is valuable to the organization for a number of reasons. So it's not the same thing as Corey Joseph, but. I'm, again, it's not because of Corey Joseph's ability. It's not because of uh, like a vibe I get from him or just not liking him. It's just I always feel like his, his usage is a little too high when he's out there. On that same note, though, I do believe that Killian is coming back soon. The uh, next week, even, potentially. Uh, I'm recording this on Friday... I believe it's April 2nd, so next week, just to give you some idea when that is, depending on when you're actually listening to this, hopefully kind of somewhere near within a few days of when I put it out, sports information just moves so fast, so. So speaking of sports news moving very quickly, as I was editing this episode, the news has come out that Killian Hayes will actually be returning tomorrow, Saturday. Uh, but Killian, he might be coming back as early as next week. I don't know how much he'll play immediately, obviously. But uh, that'll be encouraging and something that all Pistons fans have been waiting for, to see what we really have with him. And that might, it certainly will, lead to fewer Corey Joseph minutes, unless somebody else gets hurt. So, hopefully, we get to see Killian come back. I know we've probably all seen that little practice clip that was going around on Twitter of him throwing lobs to beef stew, and we're starting to get a little bit... We really want to really know what we have there. We're getting antsy. We're getting anxious. We want to know what we have because it really starts to... Feed what our speculation will be about what the Pistons might do in the draft, which is always fun. 
coming back and seeing Killian play really well would certainly give me plenty of, of things to talk about too. And, and, and that would also be, would be, that would be fun. Cause you know, I like to speculate a little bit. Speaking of speculation and beef stew, let's talk a little bit about beef stew, the power forward. Now, Dwayne Casey came out and said that we're going to see more of Isaiah Stewart at the four. He kind of came out, what he said almost had me thinking that that might be where he envisions Isaiah Stewart's future is as a power forward. Said something like, right now we need Isaiah Stewart to play the ball, uh, to play the five, to pressure the ball and pressure the rim. But his future, you're going to see, in the future, you're going to see him at the four position. That, to me, that's just, it's really intriguing. Because Isaiah, as we saw in the Washington game, he can struggle against centers with a combined width and height kind of thing. Uh, Robin Lopez was scoring like a vintage Brooke Lopez at times against Beef Stew. And I know that there were a lot of people talking about all the ways that uh, Isaiah ha was able to lock him up and was able to play him tough. And I'm not here to ignore those things or act like they don't exist or to be a guy who tells you that Isaiah Stewart isn't a center or can't play center because I think in the modern NBA, Isaiah Stewart is a center. I think that he is... Guys like him are likely, in some ways, going to start to represent a larger percentage of people playing center than guys like Robin Lopez or Brooke Lopez. Uh, and not just from a skill standpoint, but from a body type standpoint. As the game becomes more transition-oriented and more pick-and-roll and, and switch-oriented and more outside-shooting-oriented... I, I think that a large percentage, you might see, you know, you might see that someday just over half or just under half the guys playing the position are Isaiah Stewart's height. Already, a seven-footer is rare. A guy who's actually seven-foot plus and not six-foot-ten or six-eleven or whatever to me, there's not a huge difference between a 6'10 guy and a 7-foot guy or a 6'11 guy and a 7'1 guy. That's not a huge difference to me. Where you get into problems is you get a guy like Isaiah Stewart who might be 6'8", he might be 6'9", he might be 6'7". And he's out there trying to guard guys that are 7 feet tall. He's going to struggle with some of them. The guys, like I said, that have a combination of of width and height and a, and a little bit of skill are going to be able to give him occasional problems. I, again, I don't think that means he's not a center. I just think that it's a reality. And I think that you can see it on display. Um, he seems like he might be decent out on the perimeter i don't know that he'll ever be some sort of uh slashing power forward or heavy ball handling power forward but james edwards in a recent pistons mailbag for the athletic he said that he thinks that uh, isaiah can develop into a good passer and playmaker 
Now, I don't know if that's good. And this was in the context of talking about him as a power forward, sort of. But he was also talking about him as a center. He was talking about Isaiah's future um, and whether somebody asked whether they thought he could develop into an all-star or not. And and for, you know, if anybody's curious, James did say that he thinks that that is possible, but that at the floor, Isaiah Stewart will be a good starter in the NBA. That's that's the floor at this point. And I have to say that I, I, I agree with that. We've seen a couple of bounce passes to guys who were like cutting from uh, from the high post or when he was kind of dribbling in on what I guess would be a drive. It's hard to call it a drive because it wasn't, he didn't go all the way. So I don't know if, if I would say that the play was really a drive. It was something akin to that though. Uh, and he had a nice bounce pass to, I think it was Josh Jackson four or five games ago that led to, uh, uh, you know, led to a layup right at the hoop. It went in, you know, uh, not that, that matters. It doesn't. Again, it doesn't matter to me so much in situations like that whether the ball goes in or not. Just notable that he got an assist on a nice little bounce pass and has done so a couple of times when he's been given the opportunity to have the ball in situations where you would be able to do that. That's generally not the way he's been being used. But the guy who definitely knows more than me seems to think that that's that's in his future, that he's got the ability to, to develop into that. But one thing I worry about, about moving him to the four in the modern NBA, is I wonder if you lose his offensive rebounding ability a little bit. In a modern offense, a lot of the time, Isaiah wouldn't be as close to the rim playing power forward as he is playing center. And I just wonder if you might Offensive rebounding may not be his best skill at the end of his, or when he's at his peak in the NBA, but it's going to be a very positive skill for Isaiah, and moving him to power forward permanently, not just for stretches, but like as some sort of his future home, I just, I really wonder if you're going to lose some of that for your team. Not his ability to do it, but his ability to impact offensive rebounding from wherever his position is, his average position is on the floor during an offensive possession if he's playing power forward. Something to think about. Now, the biggest reason to even consider any of this at all is that Troy Weaver and Dwayne Casey are obviously preparing for the eventuality that they're going to draft Evan Mobley. I don't think that they would draft him number one. I I think that number one, if if they got the number one pick, I think that they would most likely take Cade Cunningham, right? But if they don't get the number one pick, the next best option, in their opinion, might be Evan Mobley. To me, Jalen Suggs is a really good option. To me, Jalen Green is a really good option. But you don't get guys who are seven feet tall and can handle the ball 
and have the kind of defensive potential that Evan Mobley has. He reminds me of Marcus Camby. And a lot of people say that, you know, you hear uh, Kevin Garnett brought up, you hear, which is lofty. That's it's lofty. Almost nobody could even hope to accomplish the, the kind of success that KG had in his basketball career. He's a, he's a Hall of Famer. So it's silly to compare anybody to Kevin Garnett. But, but you hear it. You do hear it, and you can kind of... You can see where they're coming from just in, in, in flashes and in glimpses of, of, of the guy's ability and his, uh, his potential. Uh, you, you hear Chris Bosh a lot. And, and again, I, I can see it, and I, I understand why people make these comparisons. And, and even my own comparison of Marcus Camby is where Marcus maybe underperformed slightly offensively to what I think he was capable of. Even that is a lofty comparison to, to hold anybody to, and I don't want to hold a guy who's never played an NBA minute and doesn't even play for my team to that kind of a standard. But that is, those are the comps. Those are the comps that get tossed around Evan uh, for Evan Mobley. You, you hear people, you know, being crazy and calling him the next Kevin Garnett or comparing him to Kevin Garnett. And you hear people comparing him to Chris Bosh. My eye test to me, it goes to Marcus Camby. Um, but with skills that, that are even at, at a, skills, some skills that Marcus had, the mid-range shooting, the comfortability as a ball handler, but are even more advanced than what we saw. And, and, and he has, the again, a lot of length, a lot of, I, I think, potential ability as a shot blocker, potential ability as a defender. He doesn't seem like he's super comfortable in post-ups. That's one thing of, of, of watching his highlights and watching him play a little bit that I've noticed is, is he doesn't he doesn't seem like he's going to be a great post player. He'll have to work on it. Let's just say that. I don't want to see say that a guy with that kind of ability won't be anything. He won't be a great post player off the bat. He'll have to work on it. How much does that even get utilized in the modern NBA? And so I, I feel like the big reason to even make any of these kind of speculations about beef stew isn't really because there's any real reason to assume that he can't be your starting center and, and be really good. It's more that there might be somebody out there worth drafting that's going to put you in a position where you have to decide which one is a center and which one's a power forward. Hi, I'm Doc Joe Brown. And I'm a Pistons fan. Also, I'm a pro wrestling fan. I host a podcast titled Pro Wrestling Talk for the Pistons Fan. But when I just need my Pistons kick, I'm listening to Emotown, hosted by Matt and Uncle Drew. You can find Emotown on all major podcast catchers. Be sure to subscribe, download, and listen. So something I've been seeing a lot on Twitter is this notion that Jeremy Grant is maybe not as good as Pistons fans started to believe he was about 10 or 12 games into the season. Uh, 
that he's cooling, that he's showing signs that, you know, this is uh, this is his true form. And that the games where he has 21 game and 12 the next and goes 0 for 9 or 0, 2 for 17, that these are this is who he really is. Not that he's a bad player by any by any stretch. I don't, I don't think anybody's really trying to say that. So I'm not trying to to put words in anybody's mouth that that they aren't trying to have. But but that this this guy who might have a good game one game and really struggle the next is just who he is because he's not really a, a major offensive cog on a good team and I kind of I see I see where they're coming from and I'm also a a jaded Pistons fan who has been through a lot and thought some guy was gonna be good and then he ended up not being good I I I went through Ben Gordon and Charlie Villanueva and Ben Gordon started really hot. I don't know if y'all remember this from the beginning of the year or from all the way back in 2010 or whatever it was, but uh, Ben Gordon started off his first five or six games as a Piston had scored more points than anyone else in their first five or six games or whatever it was as a Piston or was second all time or something like that. Uh, he didn't have a slow start to his career. And the reason I it's easy for me to remember that is because when Jeremy was on a tear at the beginning, he, he was, you know, they were, they would show the, the graphic with Jeremy's picture and how many points he had in his first four games. And the only three guys that had scored more than him were maybe, maybe Rip Hamilton, uh, I don't remember all three of them, but one of them was Ben Gordon. And it always seemed to me like, Ooh, God, that's, you know, mostly good company to be in, but there's a little bit of fool's gold. Uh, and that fool happened to be, or that fo- chunk of fool's gold happened to be in the form of a, a recent free agent acquisition who went from a, a good or decent team where he had a certain role and came to Detroit to take on a bigger one. That's a very similar narrative between Jeremy and Ben Gordon. I don't think, though, that Jeremy Grant is a Ben Gordon. I don't think that they're trying to say he is either, but something something other than what we all want to believe he is. Now, certainly some Pistons fans out there think that, that Jeremy Grant is some kind of hidden... I don't know. They, they think he's a, a hidden superstar. Or something and you know he's just not quite that if you're realistic about it and you think that Jeremy is going to when he reaches his peak which he's not at yet and I'm gonna get into that a little bit but when he reaches his peak he will be somebody in that tier right below what you would call a superstar uh, a, a deserving all-star at some point in time, hopefully in his career. It can be hard to crack into that rotation. But, like, that's that's the level that, that Jeremy really is going to, I, I think, reach. I think he will reach that. I think that's, 
that's what we should expect. That's what a realistic Pistons fan should expect. And those Pistons fans are absolutely not wrong about who they think he is. Uh, it's his first season as, like, the guy with this type of workload. So it's it's almost kind of like guys who hit a rookie wall where they're not used to playing 82-game seasons. They're used to the you know 34-game season or whatever it was they played in college. 30 games and a couple of tournament games or, you know, what are they, they, depending on how good you are. It's why it's so hard to figure out. Depending on how good you are and how much exposure you want and scheduling and stuff, it's all varied. But you know what I mean. 30-something to 40-some games, 40 games, they hit a rookie wall. They aren't used to playing nearly double the amount of games. And some at a certain, a certain point, their their performance just drops a little bit. At a certain point, they struggle in a way that you had kind of thought maybe we were past. I don't think it's unreasonable for a guy like Jeremy, whose usage rates, I don't I don't have it in front of me the exact metric, but his usage rates have skyrocketed. His points per game has doubled. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that he may at some point in time reach a level of fatigue that he's not ready for yet. He's not accustomed to yet. And that's fine. It's it's not... We wouldn't be so worried about a rookie hitting this wall. And with Jeremy, it's not even really a wall. It's it's just there's a little bit of seesawing going on right now. And we wouldn't be all that worried about it if it was a rookie. We'd be like, look, look at his earlier performance. Look at what he did the first part of the year. That's who he is. Right now, he's just hitting a little bit of a slump. And I, and I think that it's reasonable to expect Jeremy and to allow Jeremy to do the same thing without all of a sudden saying, oh, we were wrong about this guy. The only reason he's good is because he's in Detroit. And and we suck. So somebody has to somebody has to score twenty points a night for you in the NBA, and and Jeremy's just our guy. I think that's I don't think that's right. I think it's bullshit. Uh, there's also, you know, teams are figuring him out a little bit and figuring out his shtick. This whole thing with how he is as a primary scorer is just as new to the rest, or was at least just as new to the rest of the league as it was to anybody outside of him for the first part of the league, for, 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 for the first part of the season. Right now we're getting to a point where other teams are, they're, they're figuring him out a little bit. They've got the tape on him. But I believe he's also figuring that out. I believe he's starting to rely a little bit more on mid-range jumpers and a little bit more on coming around curls a little bit like Rip Hamilton and hitting a with a little bit more ball but hitting a little hitting a little mid-range jumper and stuff like that and not always trying to get to the rack or just shoot a three he's relying on that more and more and I think he's getting better at it and during the Washington game which he didn't score a ton of points or anything like that but you see he had a little uh operating in the pick and roll out on the wing but not behind the three-point line and he comes around and shoots a little mid-ranger. 
and he hit it. It was a beautiful looking shot, and it, that's really that's a part of his game that he's developing and that he'll be able to lean on when teams don't want to let him have an open three pointer or he isn't hitting his three pointer and teams are really stacking up on it. So he can't quite get to the bucket off of pick and rolls like that. He needs to stop somewhere in the intermediate. He's developing his intermediate game. It's one of the hardest things to do consistently. And one of the hardest things to develop if you don't already have it. So I think he's got it. I think he's just developing much like I often say with Sadiq Bey, where it's like he's got he can he can make a and he's shown it now, but earlier in the season I was saying Sadiq can make a layup, guys. <laughs> like let's not act like Sadiq is gotten this far and made it to the NBA and can't make a layup. He can make a layup. He's just adjusting to the speed at which he needs to do things in the NBA. And I think that's where Jeremy's at with his intermediate game right now. He can do it. And we're seeing that he can do it, and we're slowly seeing him solidify that. But we're watching it happen in real time. So there will be warts. He can make a mid-range jumper. He's just adjusting. He's adjusting to it. He's adjusting to this having to be a new part of what he does while he's out there. So teams are figuring him out, but I fully believe that he is figuring that out. I also believe that Jeremy is being used in a developmental role. And what I mean by that is they're putting him out there in situations where he's had a high fail rate, either overall throughout the season or just in that game, and being asked to do the thing. Like, in games where he's not hitting a three-pointer, they aren't telling him, okay, Jeremy, stop shooting threes. That's not what they're telling him. They're telling him, go out there and overcome the adversity. Overcome the negative feelings in your head right now about your jumper and make the shot we all know you can make. That's what they're telling him right now. Like he's a younger player. Not like he's a 27-year-old, but like he's like, you know, a 21-year-old. Because as far as... Finding a new role in your career at 27 in the NBA when you're, I think, six or seven seasons in, it's not, that's not very common. That's not very common. What Jeremy's going through right now is it's like it's a rookie type situation or a guy who's within his first couple of seasons who's just now being given a real chance. So we gotta we gotta stop looking at his age and think oh for a 26 year old or he might have had his 27th birthday by now it's I'm not sure uh, for a guy his age he sure seems to be figuring it like like feeling his way through things and figuring his way out through things more than what I would what I would expect or whatever and and, and you gotta throw that away you gotta throw that away. And pretend this is a guy who's in his third year and first year as a number one option. That's how you have to look at it. So I don't think he's really cooling. I don't think he's showing signs that he's not the dude. I think that they're asking him, basically, to instead of, you've been getting to the cup all day. We're down 20. 
you aren't hitting your three-pointers. I need you to hit three-pointers. So some games, he might be four for 16 or four for 11 or seven for 19 or something like that with a bunch of missed jumpers in the same situation over and over again. And I don't think it's because he can't do that. I think it's because he's being in-game challenged to overcome that. That's what these games are for when you know you're going to lose anyways. Not just for young players, but for guys who are figuring out whether they can be a different type of player than they've been their entire career. You, as a fan, need to not say he's washed up or he's not really the guy we thought he was or, oh, what's wrong with him just because he struggles a little bit at this point in the season in a new role. It's, it's silly. So don't buy into that. Keep the faith a little bit. I'm not saying it's impossible that Jeremy isn't this dude. And I'm also not trying to say that he's better than he really, than, I, than, than, I, than he is. I think he's, like I said, just that one, one step below what you would call a superstar. Or what somebody might call a superstar. I think that's where he'll be when he's done. When he's at his peak. I don't really think that's right now. Okay, so for my last segment, uh, I asked on Twitter if anybody had any questions or anything for the show. And uh, the guys over at the Motor City Hoops podcast, they're at Motor City Hoops on Twitter. They asked me if I had, uh, if I thought there was any future with Hamadou and Jajak. So first of all, if you don't follow the Motor City Hoops podcast on Twitter, you should. That's, that, that's thing one. Uh, they're, uh, that's a pretty damn good show, and I'm a little, it was very, it was really nice of them to even bother to ask my opinion here, but I'm going to give it to them. Uh, they're kind of the same player. That's, that's the, uh, that's the problem here, right? Hamadou and J-Jack are kind of the same player. It's not that they have identical game or anything like that. I'm not trying to say it's identical, but in many ways... They're kind of the same player, uh, so it's it's a real head it's a real head scratcher. But I think that there is a future with both of them on the team at the same time, while acknowledging the uh, the reason for the question in the first place, which is that they are very similar players, and it's very easy to see a team not needing both of them. I acknowledge that completely. So. I don't want to sweep that under the rug. It, that is, it's the reason for the question because it's kind of, when you're looking at it, you have guys that are both long, athletic, neither one can shoot all that well right now, uh, and they both they both kind of are uh, the wing guys who are switchy defenders, and, and they both excel each one sort of excels in an area where the other one maybe isn't as good. So, but if you're going to see a future with both of them on the team, I think it involves, I think it involves Josh Jackson continuing to get more comfy shooting threes, or I guess if Hami does too. Uh, either way, it kind of moves either player into a different category, in a different 
differentiates one from the other a little bit or frees one or both from this question. Because in the modern NBA, you can't have too many multi-position defenders who can attack the basket and shoot threes well enough that they have to be guarded and can be counted on from out there. So there's really only concern for redundancy when there's a lack of shooting. That's that's my opinion on Hammy and J-Jack, at least in the in the short run, meaning like the end of J-Jack's current contract, which is next year. Are we in a rush to trade him in the offseason because him and Hami are are so similar? Are we in a rush to to trade him, you know, before the deadline maybe because we're going to move definitely. We're only keeping one. Like like I said, I see both of those things as legitimate possibilities, and I, I I think there's very rational arguments for why you you don't need both of them. But just to answer the question from maybe a slightly different angle, I do see the future with both of them on the team. It just involves one or both of them developing a three-point jumper and becoming a player you can't have too many of and somebody who you can realistically see in the starting lineup and being happy to have another version of that same player replacing him off the bench. Because again, like I said, if you're a switchy defender, you're long, you're athletic, you have the ability to shoot a three and attack the basket with the ball in your hand. In the modern NBA, you can't have too many of those players. You just can't. So maybe that's a cop-out, and if it is, guys, I, I apologize. But but that's my answer. That's my answer. Developing a three-point jumper solidifies a future with both of them on the team and that being viable. Not that necessarily that's the direction the Pistons will go, but it becomes a viable direction as soon as even one – Honestly, even one, as soon as even one develops a three-point jumper, let's say uh, J-Jack really is just for the rest of the season shoots close to 40% from three or something like that. Going into next year, if you started Josh Jackson at, at, at shooting guard, let's say you didn't draft a shooting guard in the draft here coming up, uh, one of the young dynamic guards isn't who you drafted, but you drafted like Evan Mobley or something like that, like we had talked about earlier. J-Jack might be your starting shooting guard, and then you would happily replace him with Hamadou when you needed, you know, somebody off the bench who you could trust to, you know, create for themselves a little bit, maybe not be quite the three-point shooter that your starter was, but but add the same, like, the same kind of defense and the same kind of ability as a, a switchy defender or a rebounder or to box somebody out that the other guy had. You're just sacrificing that three-point shooting for the time that you have to take the one off the bench or take the one off the floor and put them on the bench. But now you don't have to sacrifice the defense, the transition ability, the athleticism. This team seems to be really trending towards being full of guys, but who are between six foot five and six eleven, and all weigh about on, you know, somewhere under 250 pounds and all run the floor. That's, I think where we're trending with Troy Weaver right now and, and can all jump and can all. So I, I really do think there's a, there's a, a reason to have both of them if even one of them can develop a three-point jumper. Maybe you take the one who can shoot threes and you bring him off of the bench as a super sub, as somebody who can come in for the two, the three, or the four. Either one of those guys could do that. With Hamadou, maybe even the one. I'm not trying to be crazy, but his 
from what I've seen, his ability to handle the ball, and he's a he's a more capable passer than I think people really give him credit for. So now that I've taken almost you know seven ten minutes, whatever it's been now to answer this question, uh, that that's kind of where I come down on it. That that I can really I really can see a future with both, uh, if one or both can hopefully both. Man, that would really be something to have either one of those guys on the floor at all times would be. I mean, it's not going to make you necessarily some kind of championship contender or anything like that. But you'd be you'd be rich, you'd be rich in a number of ways to be able to have both of those guys, one or the other, on the floor at all times and not lose any kind of three point shooting. Thanks for the question, guys. Seriously, thank you for the question. I hope I added a little bit of you know something to. Uh, to maybe the thoughts on that topic or what you maybe even you think about it now. Next week, I'll be back. Going to be doing this all again. Got Killian Hayes debut coming up on Saturday. Well, I say debut and that's a mistake, but that goes to show how long it's been since we've seen him play that in my mind, somehow it's like we've never seen him before. Anyway, that's exciting. I'll see you soon.